How's everybody doing today? Good? Awesome. Yeah, get a whoop. I'm uh, happy to be here this morning. Uh, I'm Jeff, if you don't know who I am. I'm one of the pastors here. And last week, uh, Pastor Tamil shared uh, from Scripture and just did a bang-up job. And so I'm so thrilled to have the staff here that we do. You could clap for that. Yeah. You don't have to. It's a choice through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. I want to talk this... This month, we're not going to do a a regular sermon series. Usually, I teach in series format, uh, but we're going to kind of do some one-off sermons, uh, which is a little bit different for us, and then we're going to move into a Following Jesus series uh, in October when we move into two services as well. And so uh, we wanted to kind of hold off because this month is a planning month. We're meeting with all the different ministries and, and working out schedules and how this whole two-service thing uh, is going to work. And I really ask that you would lift all of that up in prayer, uh, just uh, that we would catch the vision of why it is that we're doing this. We're not doing it because we're too full. Uh, we're doing it for the sake of the gospel. And so uh, we're going to be unpacking a little bit of that throughout this month Uh, in these meetings and as we schedule things. Today, though, I want to have a little bit of fun. We're going to open our Bibles to the book of Revelation. No, I'm serious. Open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. (laughs) And we are going to take a look at Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. Now, hold on a sec. Before you get your email fingers going and things like that and start to say, no, this imagery means this and you've got that wrong, I'm not going to do these two chapters justice. And the reason I say that is because I want to talk specifically about one specific subject or topic. And that is, what is it that drives worship? So we're going to address the simple question of what is worship. And these passages in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, I'm going to give you pictures or overviews of kind of what is actually happening in these two chapters. And so, so just hold off on, uh, you know, saying, but John Hagee says this, or so-and-so says this. Like, just relax. I'm not a Revelation guru uh, or anything like that. But chapter 4 and chapter 5 give us a beautiful picture John gets a window view of what worship looks like in heaven. Now, some of you would say that, you know, what worship looks like in heaven is not necessarily what worship should look like here. And I would challenge you and actually say, I think, I think it can. I think it can. The question is, is what is worship? When, when you hear the word worship, What do you think of first? Is it your favorite song? Is it something that you attach to Sunday mornings only? Or to a special gathering in the church building? How exactly do you personally define worship? And not just that, but what is it that actually drives you to worship? What is the motivation for worship in the first place? Why do we call our service a worship service instead of a coffee house? These are all questions, folks, that 
I have spent years and years pondering, especially when I was a younger Christian. See, I didn't come to Christ until my early 20s. And so I grew up loosely uh, in a Lutheran home. And so I was used to a minister in a robe up on a podium, and it was nappy time. Now, that is no offense to Lutherans. They can be good Christians who understand worship. But my experience in that was, it's nappy time. And so I didn't grasp what worship was. And then I met this Pentecostal girl. And so then I got this new shaping experience of what worship was in their context. So what really is Worship. I've experienced worship in a Lutheran setting. I've experienced worship in a charismatic setting. I've experienced worship in a Baptist setting, all 106 versions of Baptists. (laughs) You laugh, but it's true. What is it that we call worship? I want to I want to dive into this a little bit because it's an interesting question, and I think our lack of actually having clarity on what Scripture says worship is, and specifically what it is that drives us to worship, I believe that we need clarity on that in order to actually experience worship the way that Scripture teaches us to. See, the problem is, is often when we define worship our certain way and the form of worship that we are experiencing is different, we then struggle to truly worship God. Like if it's our favorite worship leader, we can really press in. Or if it's our favorite song, we really let loose at that moment. If it's a hymn or if it's a chorus or if it's this or if it's that, we can press in or we withdraw and go get a coffee. We've got all these mixed up views of what worship truly is. Listen to what N.T. Wright says, specifically about the question of what should drive our worship of God. N.T. Wright says, when we begin to glimpse the reality of God, the natural reaction is to worship him. Not to have that reaction is a fairly sure sign that we haven't yet really understood who he is or what he has done. Let me reread that. I want you to listen to what he says very carefully because this is going to undergird this entire sermon. He says, when we begin to glimpse the reality of God, just a little tiny glimpse of the reality of who God is, when we begin to glimpse the reality of God, what does N.T. Wright say? The natural reaction, natural, not forced, not driven by something else, but the natural reaction is to worship him. But then he says this, and this is a little bit like, uh, right? Now he can say this, and that's why I'm quoting him. He says, not to have that reaction is a fairly sure sign that we haven't yet really understood who he is or what he has done. 
So when you don't have this natural reaction to be drawn into worshiping God, maybe you have not grasped a glimpse, just a glimpse of who he really is. You see, it's not a song. It's not a style. It's not a tradition. It's not an atmosphere that causes us to want to worship. It's a glimpse of the reality of who God is in our lives that drives us folks to worship. Now, I I truly believe that we struggle in the North American church to truly understand worship. So today, I want to just dig in specifically to what Scripture says worship is. Now, this is going to be difficult for me because I I have a lot of passion about worship and the subject of worship. Uh, And so I got to try and stick to what Scripture says rather than what Jeff thinks. And we're going to all kind of struggle with that today. And so I want us to try and stay focused on what is happening in the book of Revelation. So what is, what is worship? It's a question that we need to ask, yet we might be surprised at what Scripture reveals to us regarding true worship. In order to explore this answer biblically, I've chosen to go to the book of Revelation uh, which is not always a book I will, will uh, move into because it's so complex. And so I want you to understand I won't do this justice. But I believe that these two passages give us a beautiful picture, beautiful picture of what worship is and what drives worship. It's an astonishing sight, folks. If you got your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, I'm not going to read it verse by verse. I'm going to give you kind of snapshot pictures, then dive into a section of the verse. I picked those sections very specifically, so I want you to listen very carefully to what they say. John, the Apostle John, begins by describing God's throne. And even, though cautiously and obliquely, God himself. Thunder and lightning are coming from the throne, he says, telling us that this is a place of awesome glory. Around the throne are representatives of the animal kingdom and the world of humanity. The whole creation is worshiping God for all he's worth. The animals are singing a song of God's eternal holiness. Listen to what he says in Revelation 8. It says, each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings, day and night. They never stopped saying, that's what I want you to capture here. Don't get caught up in the imagery, revelations that way. What it says is, these creatures, day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It doesn't say day and night they occasionally realize God is holy, but other than that, they have social time. It says that day and night, they never stop saying Holy. See, they recognize the holiness of their creator, the Lord God Almighty, who was and is 
and is to come. The animals and the birds, they know their maker and praise him. Folks, you might get uncomfortable with this, but they praise him in a language humans wouldn't normally understand. But in the heavenly dimension, it all becomes clear. They know that their creator is, an all power, is all powerful. They know he is eternal. And they know that he is holy. Now already in the early stages of this passage, we're only just read verse 8, we begin to see the inner logic of worship. N.T. Wright says this. He said, worship means literally acknowledging the worth of something or someone. It means recognizing and saying that something or someone is worthy of praise. It means celebrating the worth of someone or something far superior to oneself. This scene that John tells us about, it doesn't end with a single song of praise. There's not like an order of service that they're following and it's time to move on. In fact, it's just the beginning. The animals are praising their creator. Then the humans join in. But their song is fuller. They have more to say. They they cast their crowns, it says, before God's throne. Not just to celebrate his greatness, but also to express their understanding of why they, as his creatures, are right to offer him praise. Revelation 4.11, this is what the humans sing. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. I want to back up for a sec. It referenced something about crowns. And in the Christian church, we love to talk about the rewards and the crowns that we will receive in heaven. We've got hymns written about the mansions that we will receive one day in heaven. But I want you to notice how the human beings in this passage are reacting and what they're doing with those crowns. They're laying them at the foot of the throne. In other words, folks... The rewards mean nothing when you're in the presence of Jesus Christ. It's not the rewards that motivate the worship. It's the holiness, the awestruckness of who God is. You are making a drastic mistake in your Christian life if you're doing Christianity for a reward. You are making a drastic mistake in your Christian life if you are worshiping Jesus because you think you need a reward in heaven. Your reward in heaven, according to Revelation, is Jesus himself. We lay our crowns at his feet, giving up our whole self, giving away the rewards. There's nothing in this for us, but yet there's everything in it because of him. Human beings worship God in this passage because they've been given the answer to a secret. You hear Paul talk about that, don't you? He talks about, I've been given the answer to a secret, or I know a secret, or I'm going to 
let you in on a secret. Here's their secret. They know why God ought to be praised and why they want to praise him. Because he made all things. He's the creator, and we worship the one who created the world. Now, this picture that John is giving us in chapter 4 is about God being creator and us being driven to worship him. It's a very simple picture. There's much more to it. I understand that. Now, this brings up a question for me. If we worship God as creator, maybe you don't think this way. Maybe you just kind of default to, well, yeah, we worship God as creator. That's fine. Have you looked at creation lately? If our whole motivation to worship God is because he's the creator of the heavens and the earth, and then we look around at the earth and at creation, I'm not sure that that motivates me to worship. Genuinely, if we were honest, maybe the idea motivates you to worship, but does it? When I talk to somebody who doesn't know Christ, who didn't grow up in the Christian home, who doesn't know all of our Christianese lingo and the things that set us off, they're like, what? That doesn't motivate me to worship. How do I even know God created the heavens and the earth? And then what we do as Christians is we start to argue about whether it's a literal seven days or not a literal, and and they're standing back going, wow, I am not interested in that. (laughs) Do you think the enemy's doing something to us there, folks? You see, John, he deals with this. But regular humanity struggles with the concept of God as creator because there's evil in our world. Lots of people come to my office and say, I struggle with the way that the world is. Why would God allow pain? Why would God allow suffering? Why would there be evil if he really is this holy God? Why can't he just fix all of this right now? The good news is, folks, that this issue is also at the heart of what Christian worship is all about. It's the exact reaction that takes place in John's vision. You see, at the start of chapter 5 of Revelation, John notices that there's a figure. Now, a picture, like John's like a fly on the wall, getting a glimpse, a picture of what's happening. And there's a figure on a throne holding a scroll which we, as we read, we gradually realize is the scroll of God's future purposes, the purposes through which the world is at last to be judged and healed. Now, the problem is, is in John's story, that nobody is actually able to open the scroll. There's a problem. There's something happening here. And the vision shows us that God has committed himself ever since creation to working through his creatures, in particular through human beings, but they've all let him down. For a moment, in the vision, it looks like all of God's plans are going to be thwarted. But then, there appears beside the throne a different kind of animal. 
He is, we're told in the text, a lion. But then we're also told that he's a lamb. How many people have read Revelation before? And how many people read that and go, what is going on? He's a lion and a lamb. Wait a minute. We sing songs, lion and the lamb, right? Oh, then it makes sense because we sing about it. When you read Revelation, you have to get used to this kind of stuff. It it gets confusing, but the, the early readers of Revelation, folks, would not have been confused by any of the imagery that is given to them in this book. They wouldn't have been confused because the imagery actually had direct meaning to them and very significant meaning. The lion is an ancient Jewish image for the Messiah. We can thank uh, C.S. Lewis for some of that. But the lion is an ancient Jewish image for the Messiah, the king of Israel and the world. So they recognize this. And the lamb is a customary sacrificial offering for the sins of Israel and the world. Both these roles are combined in Jesus in a way that nobody ever imagined before. But at this point, when John is revealing this, it would have begun to make perfect sense to those who believe. So the story says, then the lion and lamb, lion slash lamb, appear. Those who are already singing, the animals and the humans, they now turn their praise of God, the creator, into their praise of God, the redeemer. Now, this changes everything, folks. God, the creator in chapter 4, and now it moves into God, the Redeemer. Revelation 5, verses 9 to 10 says this, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign Where? On the earth. Then the vision gets going here. We're just getting getting amped up. This was just like the intro song, right? Like coffee time's over. Travis has led us through the call of worship, and now we're really going to dig in. The choir joins in. Now, a lot of people are going to say, that's right, we need a choir, that's what it is. That's, that's our whole thing. We got rid of choirs years ago. We need a choir because Revelation has it. Maybe, sure. Talk to Tamil and volunteer to lead the choir. In this passage, though, folks, the choir joins in from all directions. And the angels take up this song. Verse 12, it says, In a loud cry... They were saying, now, folks, I I need you to hear that. In a loud cry. Can I say that again? In a loud cry. I want you to see something that you're probably missing. Worship is active. Worship gets a little crazy, and worship can be loud. 
What are you talking about? Worship is an organ with a choir. Or worship is a rock song with fog machines. Hear what it's showing us. And we're going to work through this. A loud voice, in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. They're not beating around the bush about this. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Worthy is the lamb. And at last, now we're really getting ramped up. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them join in and sang to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb to be praised and honor and glory and power, not just for this moment, not just for an hour, not just for 15 minutes, not just for five minutes, not just before Swiss chalet, but forever and ever and ever. Do you see it? Do you see it? That is what worship is all about. It's the glad shout of praise that arises to God the creator and God the rescuer. This picture of worship that John gives us in Revelation tells us exactly why we worship. We worship God not because we get something from it, but because we realize who he is, our creator and our redeemer, our salvation. Now, in our North American culture, that just doesn't mean much because we often think we can attain all of that ourselves. But we can't. It's only through God and the power of his Holy Spirit and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that these things are available to us. Revelation teaches us what true worship is, what drives our worship. Receiving a glimpse of God drives our heart to worship. Receiving a glimpse of who God is drives our heart to worship. Worship is our human response. This is is like a tweetable statement, okay? Worship is our human response to a gracious God. It's not driven by our current mood. You ever been like that? Oh, I'm just really struggling to worship today. (laughs) Worship is not driven by our current mood or our most recent favorite song. True worship is driven by our overwhelming realization that God, our creator and redeemer, is holy, majestic, and wonderful, and he is worthy of our praise. Worship for us here on God's created earth, folks, is both an attitude and an act. I say that again. Worship for us here on God's created earth is both an attitude and an act. Worship is a lifestyle. It's our every day. Then we gather as believers to practice our beliefs and celebrate, I'm going to say that, celebrate 
You don't, you celebrate. Yeah. No, I'm whatever. You don't have to. Don't worry about it. We'll pray later. It's going to be okay. I can't believe you yelled out in church. (laughs) Worship is our lifestyle. It's our everyday. Then we gather as believers to practice our beliefs and to celebrate what? Who God is. We shout praises together. We sing songs of praise together. We read scripture together. We recite liturgy together. We break bread together, all with the purpose of praising God as our creator and redeemer. Praise is the expression we give to the worship we live. I'm going to say that again. Praise is the expression we give to the worship that we live. It involves more than we realize. Very quickly, I'm going to walk us through five things. Everybody's like, oh my goodness. (laughs) Five more things? (laughs) Worship, folks, involves surrender of our lives. Romans 12.1 says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. One of the things that gets in our way of truly worshiping and experiencing God is our constant human struggle with surrender. We don't like that word. We don't like the practice that goes with that word. To surrender means to give up your whole self as a living sacrifice. This means that we have to strip away our sinful nature of control and focus our hearts and minds on the holiness of God and nothing else matters but God. The moment that we shift our focus back to control, we lose our posture of surrender. Surrendering your whole self to God is the key to seeing a glimpse of his holiness. This is a process. So we need to, as sinful human beings, strip away our layers of sin and press into our relationship with our Redeemer. Now this leads me to the next thing that we learn from John in Revelation. Worship is putting our focus on him. True worship is based on our desire to honor God. It's not based on our likes and our dislikes. Worship is not about me, it's about me focusing on who God is. The lion and the lamb, our creator and redeemer. This doesn't just happen in a worship service, folks. It's a mindset. It's a lifestyle. It's a new way of thinking that can only be driven by the work of the Spirit living in us. And worship involves us getting out of the way. As we strip away our opinions, our likes and our dislikes, our worries and our control, 
God begins to reveal himself to us through the presence of his Holy Spirit. So in order to worship, we have to get out of the way. We have to let go of control and let the Spirit of God take control, not just of us in a moment, but our entire lives. And folks, worship involves personal sacrifice. Praise can be easy when times are good right? It's very easy to praise God and thank God for the many blessings you've given me. But how many people are like, I am so blessed because my life sucks right now? Right? Folks, you got to understand, worship involves personal sacrifice. It requires sacrificing our own feelings and our fears so that we can give God our focus. When we do this, God, through his spirit, will bring us the comfort and contentment that Paul talks about in Philippians in our previous series. That contentment that only the spirit of God can bring. We worship God no matter what our circumstances. Now, David, King David, showed us this. We must worship in the face of pain and loss. King David demonstrated this what it means to worship in the face of loss and pain. His, his baby died in 2 Samuel. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he agonized and he called out to God and asked him to allow his child to live, but the baby died. I couldn't imagine what that's like. Some of you maybe actually know exactly what that's like. But David shows us something important. After this baby's death, in 2 Samuel 12, 20, it says this. This is David's reaction. Then David got up from the ground, so he did spend time mourning. He spent time weeping and wailing. But then what? He didn't wallow in that. He didn't stay in that forever and get stuck in that. It says, then David got up from the ground after he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Now, wait a minute. I thought that our mood mattered about whether we could worship. Who really feels compelled to worship after suffering great loss and pain? David's showing us that it's important in times of pain and suffering that we move toward God rather than away from him. And so if you're struggling, folks, Press in, don't pull away. But you got to strip away self in order to get there. And worship, my last point, you can say amen. <laughs> worship is celebrating who God is and what he has done. This is what we do on a Sunday morning when we gather to celebrate, and it's something we can do in the line at Tim Hortons as well. Psalm 100 verses 1 to 5 says this, Shout for, the, for joy to the Lord all the earth. I have to be honest, I really struggle when our celebration time looks boring. Because everything I read in Scripture says, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. 
Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful song. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all the generations. Now, when I say a celebratory room full of joy, I understand that people show joy differently. Like, I get that. A good example is um, I'm not a big uh, 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 public display of affection kind of guy. I'm just not, right, Carrie? It's true. Like, I'm not a big hand holder, you know, like hug and wrap my leg around her kind of guy. I just don't do that. Um, but some of you do. Ugh. And, and so I, I use that as, as a good example because some of us, We'll be full of joy, but be expressing it differently than others. And so we can't have this preconceived idea of what joy looks like. But what I can challenge you to is, when you are praising God and you want to shout, shout. See, often it's what holds us back from these things is self. I'm worried about what people might think. I'm worried about whether... Like all these different things... And you're supposed to just forget about everything that's going on and celebrate God as our creator, God as our redeemer. Notice the emphasis of joyfulness in this psalm. Praise and celebration is full of joy even in the midst of our sorrow. God's our creator. He's our redeemer. Jesus is the source of our salvation. No matter what is happening in our lives in this broken world, we celebrate together who God is and what he has done. That is the purpose of the gathering of the saints. I hate to tell you, folks, and I know I've harped on this for five years, but the purpose of the gathering of the saints is not just for your social purposes. Now, I'll I'll correct that. It is for your social purposes with Jesus. Now, the social life that we gain through the gathering of the saints is wonderful and a great benefit, but it is not the reason. It's the holiness of God our creator and our redeemer of why we gather to celebrate and lift him up. As Christians, we're called to worship him in all things, in all areas of our lives. True worship is a life that is centered on and living for our creator and redeemer, Jesus Christ. It's expressed as celebration and lived through genuine love for Jesus. We might celebrate the reality of worship in many different ways. Some of us love hill songs. 
or love Bethel music or love a certain style of worship, and we define that as our style of worship. And some of us that define, say, that style of worship actually at times talk down about other ways of worship. That is, that is, that is a, that's not good. Do you know why that's not good? Because when we are lifting up God as our creator and our redeemer, it's irrelevant whether we're singing a song or reading liturgy or whatever styles that we may have in the different bends of our church. What's relevant, folks, is why we're doing it and who we're doing it to. So you, can, you could come in here and you can roll down the aisles, do cartwheels, flip out, backflip, do whatever, and never experience Jesus Christ. You can also come in and you can sing the greatest hymn ever written, have a choir singing, say liturgy that has deep theological beauty, and never experience Jesus Christ. Or you can do any and all of those things. Lifting up God as our holy creator and redeemer. Focusing your heart on him. And now it means something. And you will get a glimpse of what John got in Revelation. So this is what I want to challenge you with today as I wrap up. If you worship and celebrate God in a certain way. So at the beginning of the sermon, you had very specific answers of what you believe that worship, our celebratory gathering should look like or what worship looks like in your everyday. And you have a very distinct way that that's done. And when it's not done that way, you struggle a little bit. I want to challenge you something for this month. Try another way. Try another way. Some of us have only ever been in a certain bend of Christianity, and we've never, I mean, some of us go to the point of saying our bend is the only Christianity, and the other bends just aren't. Try to worship in a, a different way, but approach it differently. Don't make it about you, don't make it about your experience. Make it about God, our creator and our redeemer. So if you love hill songs and you're like me, I love to put on my AirPods and, and turn the lights off and play my favorite worship songs and I just feel like God is just surrounding me. Theologically, he already is, folks, just saying. But, you know, then I'll like invite the Holy Spirit in. Theologically, he's already there. But anyway... <laughs> all those different languages that we use that really make me laugh. I say nothing, though. <laughs> but but this, that's my thing, right? Quite, like, in a house full of teenagers, you do this early in the morning because teenagers are not alive yet. <laughs> now that they've all moved out, I, well, I still do it early in the morning. But anyway, and I, and I love to just soak up God's presence in my life. I love to cry out to him, to give him all my stuff, to ask him to, to shape my heart and to mold me. This is my thing. And then I'll, then I'll go to scripture 
and I'll, I'll let Scripture... When you read the Bible and the Bible comes alive, like not just this static, like I checked a box today, that was great, but like this, like Scripture actually comes alive and speaks to you. It, it forms and shapes and changes your life. So that's my thing. That's my way. And so what I did was I challenged myself to do it differently. And I found that at time... After, at, the, at the beginning, I was like, oh, man, this sucks. This is no good. I just need my AirPods and Hill songs. But as I pressed in and I started to learn that it's not actually about that, that it's actually about me focusing on who God is and catching a glimpse of that, I started to notice that I could worship no matter what the context. That I could worship in the lineup at Tim Hortons. Now, occasionally, if you shout for joy, they might think you're weird, but it's okay. So I want to challenge you folks, try a different way than what's your way and let God reveal himself to you. Worship team can join me. Here's the big idea for today. 43 minutes took us to get to here. Worship is driven by catching a glimpse of who God is. That's what drives worship. Not our mood, not our emotions, not our worship leaders, none of that. Worship is driven by catching a glimpse of who God is. It's about living our lives in awe of God as our creator and redeemer. I want to stress something. Living our lives in awe. Acts chapter 4. The early church. They were in awe. And then what does it say? What, was the, what happened? Because they're in awe of who God is. Signs and wonders. You see, when we're not in awe, when it's just like a thing we do occasionally, there's no awe, no signs and wonders. Isn't that interesting? It's about living our lives in awe of God as our creator and redeemer. And it's expressing through celebration and a genuine spirit-driven love for others. It's expressed through celebration and a genuine spirit-driven love for others. You see, if you truly catch a glimpse of who God is, you automatically can't help but worship him. And through that worship, you can't help but pour his love out onto others. If those things are lacking, you're not getting the glimpse. According to N.T. Wright, we'll lay that on him.